Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my. It's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others. Here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker. I'm here with my co-host, PK, all the way from Tucson. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm just doing fabulously. It's great. a decent day. Hot, but there's a little wind. That's Actually, good Actually, there's a lot of wind right now. <laughs> and oh, it's all goodness. hot here. Like yeah, it sure is. <laughs> but it's nice. It is. Well, I this is great. Believe this is. I, well, I'm glad you're able to make it tonight because we have a terrific guest. We have an expert and author on one of our very favorite topics. We've never had anybody on the show before to talk about it, and tonight we do. We have R.L. Poole. He is with us. He's going to be telling us the real story about Coral Castle in just a few minutes. But first, let's take a look at the numbers. You've been looking at the numbers of the person yeah. who created this castle, Edward Leedskelman, as I guess is how it's pronounced, and he's it's from Latvia. because I knew I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were looking at all of his numbers, his birth date, his name. What did you find out about this very unique person? Well, you know, the thing that I was surprised at is how much karma is within his chart. Now, he doesn't have a big ego at all. He gives and takes equally well. He's creative and outgoing, but not overly so. And as we progress through the chart, we find that that's a karmic accumulation for him. So he's had to work at being able to communicate that people would understand him in, in the way that he felt it was necessary. But when it came to work, work-related issues, very hard work, to the point of being so anally detailed mm-hmm. on how we make things work. Did very well making changes and dealing with that. But when it came to uh, family issues of the past or taking a look at how to work things now and how he dealt with his finances in here, they're all karmic accumulation numbers. They're all things that he had to work at. He has... Three karmic lessons out of, out of nine. We work with nine numbers. He has three karmic accumulations numbers, and he has one that is a, uh, a pulled over. So he actually has four areas of karma out of nine. So mm-hmm. God bless him for whatever he was able to accomplish. It was great. Yeah. Taking a look at his name, uh, he, he wants things for others, but he needs to be independent. And his birth... Uh, information gave me that he was here to make a difference he's here to stand on his own two feet and he did not have an easy time period regardless it isn't even without the relationship issues major issues with the father figure 
and that was true up until he passed away. There was always issues with the father figure or how it affected him in in this world. But uh, very difficult time making everything work. He was, I'd say he was kind of a workaholic. He wanted everything precise, by the book, square, if you know what I mean, which is ironic since all the things he was doing, everything fit perfectly. Yes, it did. And that was, yeah, not, not so much as a ray of light that goes through. So when I was taking a look at how he responded with things, very interesting soul who did not really want to take from anybody else, even to the point of when he built the castle and he had it done, he would charge 25 cents. And if you didn't have the money to get in, he'd still let you in. It it wasn't about the money. Right. Never was. And he did all this work on his own. God love him. That's a lot of work, but we're going to find out how he did it. I know, really. This is so fascinating because, again, we've looked at this story and we've been waiting for someone to come mm-hmm. to the show and talk about it. So we're very, very honored tonight to have R.L. Poole with us. And oh, before sure. before we go there, though, I found this story today. It was written by our friend Nick Redfern. And, you know, Nick takes uh, a look at all the cryptid stories. and. Right. He came up with this one I would like to share with everybody. Now, of course, everybody, go to our Facebook page, like, and follow us there, because that's where we post all these great things. But basically, this one was very strange. Now, the location was the Humboldt Meridian in northwestern California. And when he was in this area, actually this this um, this grandfather's journal that he got, it was shared with paranormal expert Brad Steiger, and it was a, a journal from a man named James C. Wyatt of Memphis, Tennessee. But he was in this Humboldt area, and it was while he was there on one day that the grandfather encountered a tribesman carrying a plate of raw meat. So he was puzzled, and he asked what it was for. And after pondering on things for a while, the man motioned Wyatt Sr. to follow him. So they arrived to a cave built into a cliff face, and there Wyatt Sr. was shocked to see a huge, hair-covered, man-like creature. But it was quite docile, enthusiastically ate the meat that had been provided for him, and it was then that Wyatt's grandfather got the full story. The beast was nicknamed Crazy Bear. And he had supposedly been brought to the forest, get this one, from the stars. Nothing oh, less wow. than, yeah, see, a small moon oh. had descended, ejecting both the creature and several more of its kind. So the moon was reportedly piloted by very human-looking entities that always waved at the Indians as they dumped the hairy creatures on their land. <laughs> wow. Now, Nick goes on to talk about British Bigfoot, or specifically there was one creature that had been seen in the U.K. and it's described the same way. Um, but this one was called the Shug Monkey. And the Shug Monkey was most notably seen, and we've heard this one before, Rendlesham Forest. 
in Suffolk, and that's the area of the forest that just happens to be the site of what is claimed to be the U.K.'s most famous UFO encounter. And, and this is an event that occurred back in December 1980. So here we have somewhat of a link. Now, we've heard this on and off with our guests about the link between UFOs and Bigfoot. Now, here are a couple of cases that seem to back that up by witnesses. And, again, these, these news reports or these stories that have been passed on from long ago, they tend to be fairly accurate. It's not like today's news that gets uh, angled and rewritten before we ever see it. This tends right. to be what yeah. it really happened. So, anyways, uh, this story is on our Facebook page. Go ahead, take a look at the whole thing. It is very, very interesting. So there may indeed be a place where, in fact, this is true, that Bigfoot has been dropped off here by aliens. It might be that Bigfoot is one of their genetic experiments, and they brought him here. So this will be interesting going forward. Nick Redfern is keeping a close eye on all of these stories, and he's reporting on them. And great job, Nick. I think you're doing a great job. So Fabulous. Yes, so let's get back to our main story tonight. This is the coolest thing in the world. So R.L. Poole is an independent researcher, author, and speaker who has spent the past decade and a half scrutinizing the cryptic written works and mysterious monument left to us by the late Edward Leedskillen. Now, this the Leedskillen Codex, Breakthroughs in Understanding the Coral Castle, is the new book. We highly recommend it. And, again, this has been talked about for years, but nobody's been able to crack this code. But I think Mr. Poole is going to help us with that tonight. Now, he is a member, a lifetime member of American Mensa. He has been referred to as the voice of the Coral Castle and the only person to talk to on this subject by Prometheus Entertainment and his unique combination of intellectual traits allows him to decrypt and translate the brilliance of Leedskillen's ideas and accomplishments in a way that no one else has been able to. So he's even earned the praise and attention of best-selling author, who's also been on our show, Graham Hancock, which is quite an honor. And the book has just hit number one on Amazon, and I believe it's in the physics category. That is quite an honor as well. So let's welcome R.L. to the show. R.L., please Are join you? us. We can't wait to hear this stuff. I know. I said he was Are you kidding me? I don't want to say anything to mess up the perfectness that you just said right there. I'm, I'm out. Uh, I'll see you later. <laughs> I'm kidding. What a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Patricia uh, and PK. Thank you for having me on your show. It's our oh, pleasure. Yes. Excited about it. So how did you so get where, involved where we in start? researching this? Just tell us a little bit about what intrigued you about the Coral Castle and Edward. What brought you to their door? My first experience of hearing about Ed Leedskullen or the Coral Castle was in search of the Castle of Secrets. And this was a program narrated very famously by Leonard Nimoy. Yes. And oh, I yes. saw this one. And you remember this, yes. And I saw this when I was a small boy. I was I don't know, nine, ten years old. And I was uh, 
asthmatic and sickly and a little kid. And I was fascinated by the story of this little tiny guy who could move anything he wanted mm-hmm. seemingly by magic to me as a, as a small weak feeling person, a child, I was fascinated by how empowered he was and that his size was not a limiting factor in his success. And how I became fascinated by him. Yeah. And as the years go went on, I, you know, would touch base with the subject briefly, but I had come to realize that no one else seemed to have as much interest in the subject as I had, and there had still been no answer. Seventy-five years later, no one had gotten any farther into the mystery of Edward Leedskalnum than Leonard Nimoy did when I was a nine-year-old boy. Oh, my goodness. And so I took the challenge upon myself with a bit of faith that Edward Leedskalnum was not a stingy person or a mean person. I felt something about him was benevolent, generous, Mm -hmm. and kind. And I felt like he would not have done these amazing things and then not left anything behind for us to learn from. Otherwise, it would be pointless. And so I took up the task of studying Leedskalman and seeing if there were indeed things left behind for us to find in what I have found is it's my national treasure. Anybody who's familiar with that movie yeah. who knows the chase of that character and the treasure that he finds at the end, this is my national treasure, but it's happening in real life. And I, I think that this story is compelling. And the reason that it has helped maybe drive the book to number one on Amazon is because people can get behind it. It's such an organic discovery. Mm-hmm. And it comes from a person who truly cares about the subject. Uh, I don't do this for money. I do this because it's my purpose in life. And I had studied him for about three years. I just carried two of his little booklets around with me. And they were Magnetic Current and Mineral, Vegetable, and Animal Life. These two little booklets that he wrote and poured his heart and soul into them, talking about science and about magnetism and physics And on the covers of these two books that I've been carrying around with me for years, on one is a symbol of the perpetual motion holder. This is a device of his own invention. And if you, it's like a U-magnet with coils and a bar across the top. And if you zap the coils with electricity, it will stay permanently locked on there until you remove the bar. It's quite genius. Now on the other, yeah, it is. And on the other booklet, magnetic current, there are these two kind of little squiggly lines that are on the cover that seem inexplicable until one day I'm watching Iron Man. I'm on Christmas break and I'm watching the movie Iron Man because I'm a big comic book person and I see this part Mm -hmm. where Tony Stark is hiding these plans and he does it by drawing only part of the schematic on different pieces of paper and then when you overlap all of the pieces of paper and line them up you see the entire schematic. Okay. And I was lit- I literally had the book sitting right beside me as I'm watching it. And, and I'm looking at the covers, and I'm like, no, wait, it couldn't be. So I run over to the window in the bright light of the early morning sun, and I hold it up to the window, and they fit like a key in a lock. And wow. what he had done was he had hidden part of a schematic in plain sight for 75 years. Oh, my gosh. Incredible. 
And this single discovery is what propelled me to where I am now and all of the other secrets and, and clues and riddles of his that I have dug out and solved. It was all because I found that very first clue on the trail of breadcrumb. And that's, and I've been doing it ever since. That is incredible. You must've been so excited in that moment. I mean, that was a real breakthrough how you put that together. It was a very emotional moment for me. I have to be honest because I had a couple of realizations. One was that I'm the first person to see this and know about it on the entire planet. What an exhilarating feeling that is to discover something that absolutely no one else knows. Mm -hmm. But then the other part, and this really warmed my heart, is that Ed didn't know it, but he put that there for me. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. Uh, Really, when you think about it, he didn't know it. He was leaving this for someone to find, and he didn't know it, but he left it for me. And Absolutely. I'm very grateful for that. that good that what you a gift. should be aware of that also. Oh, thank you. I, I don't know how I could have ignored that moment. It just, it just hit me right in the heart that Ed left this gift for me, but for us. And I just happened to find it first. That's amazing. Very validating. Yeah, it was a very validating moment for me, too, that I've been carrying these books around like an idiot for three years, and everybody just thought (laughs) there was something wrong with me. And then all of a sudden, you know, oops, I found something. And, you know, it just goes to show you if you look at something long enough, you'll figure it out, you know. And and that's the key is I've found that so many people who have written books on this subject or claim to be experts on this subject really are willing to settle for very quick, fast, and incorrect answers to things because they sound cool or they want them to be true. And I had to divorce myself from emotional attachment to any theory because if I didn't, then I would go down the same road that they did. And I had to start out with zero assumptions except that he left the answers to be found. And that was verified by my first discovery of the secret schematics. So I felt very comfortable proceeding forward with that small leap of faith once I had found something worthwhile and verifiable and uh, true that was left by him. Very important. So now you, you've been researching this. This aha moment happens. It's transformative. And you kept going to find out what he left all of us. But tell us a little bit, if you could, about Ed himself, because he was a very interesting person. You mentioned that he was of small stature. He was probably five foot something and 100 pounds, maybe yeah. soaking wet. He was a small guy. He was from Latvia. But tell us what you know about him. Well, what I know about Edward Leedskalman is that he was a very small diminutive, quiet, unassuming, polite, bashful person, and that he was completely full of it. (laughs) Not that he wasn't a genuinely good person, but that he lived like a spy. He lives like a spy lives. You see, I have done a lot of research about Edward Leedskullen in the last five years, and what I've come to realize is that Edward Leedskullen lived like a spy. He came into the country and through New York and then 
As soon as he arrives in New York, he takes off and heads off all the way across the country to Oregon to pursue the brilliant career of a lumberjack. A oh. uh, five foot tall, 100 pound lumberjack. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, that, sure, that makes sense. No problem. People just gloss over this, like, like yeah, sure, why not? So yeah. then he goes from being out in Oregon, out in the middle of nowhere, pursuing a career that would most likely get anyone else his size and, and height killed, uh, just simply because of the danger associated with the job and the strength and things required. Then he goes from that, and then he moves all the way back across the country again, this time to the other corner of the United States, down to the very, very tippy-tippy tip of Florida. So he goes, starts at one corner of the United States, then travels all the way across the United States, then travels back all the way back where he was, only down the complete southern end in a triangle formation. Right. This is a person who doesn't make close relationships, who doesn't have close friends, who is not worried about any baggage, so to speak. They travel light, which means that he was not living a normal societal life. Uh, you know, he would make, I think, uh, pleasant neighbors with people, but never close friends. Mm-hmm. And this is the mark, again, of someone who doesn't want to have close attachments to anyone it's kind of the mark of a spy. Now, mm-hmm. what I have just found a few months ago, and uh, I talked to George Nori about this on Coast to Coast, um, uh, discussed it with Prometheus uh, on the History Channel, was that I discovered the cipher to Ed's book. See, uh, he wrote a book called A Book in Every Home. Yes, right. And in this book, it says a lot of weird stuff, but the first weird thing it says is, reader, if for any reason you do not like what I say in this little book, I left just as much space as I used so you can write your own opinion opposite it and see if you can do better. It's so weird I memorized it. <laughs> and across I know, right? And then across from each page that he wrote is a blank page wow. throughout the entire book. So <laughs> many people have surmised that this was for you to work out the code, the cipher, on the other page and oh, okay. decrypt it. So you could read uh-huh. it, and they are correct. It, the book is encoded, but no one has been able to scratch the cipher on this book in 80 years, and I cracked it three months ago. Oh, and congratulations. Been, <laughs> wow. Thank you. Fabulous. It's going to be part of a, a new book I'm writing uh, to um, top off kind of the Lead Skullman book series that I'm doing. But again, oh, fabulous. It, 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 you know, his whole, the Coral Castle is a puzzle. When you look at the east wall of the Coral Castle, those are not random shapes that you see on the wall. They are particularly, specifically placed there. And they are celestial alignments. They are constellations. And what I discovered was that it was a line of constellations that go from left to right on the east wall, which is from Virgo to Taurus, which is perfectly in line with the night sky. And the reason for these 16 celestial alignments is that it's a star map, but a map doesn't really help us. We know that we are in space. That doesn't help us having a a star map, unless you can use the stars for the one thing they've been used for on this planet since we've been watching them, and that is to count time. We count time very well with stars. We've done it Mm -hmm. for a long time, and I realized that these 16 points 
that I have found, carved in the coral, is it's a map, but really what it is is a fingerprint of a day and a time. So what I had to do is I had to find a, a moment in time, either in the history, present, or future, in which these 16 celestial alignments show up exactly the way that they are represented on the wall and the time that they represent. And I found it. <laughs> you did. It's incredible. I did. It, and this is included in the Lead Scalding Codex, and one of the reasons I think why the book's becoming popular is it's September 10th, 1923, 6.08 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, or Ed Time, as I like to say it. And it shows <laughs> a four point syzygy. Okay? September 10th, 1923. This is the year Ed built the Coral Castle. And it is also the time he shows on the wall is the exact time when Venus, the sun, the moon, and the earth, their equators are all in an exact straight line. Oh, my goodness. And he captures this moment in stone forever as a major component of the Coral Castle and leaves it in front of us for 80 years. Incredible. And no one notices it. No one sees it. And what I realized is that he is trying to teach us something about celestial mechanics and about our modern physics. When you look and what at, do you think that you, is? I believe that what he has done is rediscovered an older and more accurate form of physics that is not based on what we perceive as gravity, but as magnetism as the most fundamental and powerful force in the universe, that it is the perpetual motion engine of all creation, governance, and destruction of everything in the universe. So the reason I believe this is that the day that Ed shows, the time that Ed shows, if you drew four circles in a, in a row, in a straight line, and if you said, okay, this side on the left is Venus, and the exact opposite side, which is Earth, Ed would have been exactly opposite of this entire line. He was at the very end of the line of this alignment at the day and time that he carved into the stone. Why is that important? Right, why? I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know until... I was watching a video on magnetism on YouTube or something, and I saw them demonstrating something called a Gauss rifle. Do either of you know what a Gauss rifle is? Because I didn't. No, not. Okay, it's very cool. A Gauss rifle is a type of mechanism that will launch a projectile simply using magnetism. No propellant is required. So, if you look at the trigger, the trigger mechanism for a Gauss rifle, it shows a ball bearing on the left, and then a large sphere magnet. And then next to that on the right would be a small ball bearing and then another small ball bearing. Well, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist or a, a member of Mensa to see that that's very analogous to the alignment that Ed is showing on the wall, the syzygy. Venus, then the giant sphere magnet, the moon, and then the little ball bearing, or I'm sorry, the large Sphere magnet being the sun, and then the little ball bearing the moon, little ball bearing the earth. And if you roll from left to right, there will be an invisible transfer of motion, and the ball bearing on the very right, in this case, which would symbolize earth, would go flying off the table. 
I believe that Ed Leedskalman was using our solar system like a celestial mechanical device, and that when the tumblers in this lock line up and then you alter the conditions to your advantage, that you are able to do things, bend what we now currently misunderstand as the laws of physics, that we can temporarily bend those laws for a while. And I believe that that is what he did and how he built the Coral Castle, was by demonstrating the superior and older form of physics, and then leaving this evidence behind that the Coral Castle isn't the accomplishment. It's the evidence of it. You see. I see. So the Coral Castle gets your attention, but the symbolism of what he did and how he did it is really inscribed in the walls and everything else. So Yes, what it is sense. is the it's the yes, it's it's the physical manifestation of and proof of this older, better knowledge of physics. He he doesn't just say it to you in a comment section. He lists the stones out of the ground and shows you it works. And this is why I believe he built, he moved the Coral Castle from where it was originally built. Uh, he, he had it built, I believe, originally in Florida City, just a couple mm-hmm. miles down the road from where it is now. And by the way, as a numerology person, PK, you probably would like knowing that Homestead, Florida is 16 letters. And he was obsessed with the number 16. That makes sense. Because and, he's so uh, the, about everything. Because right. of the twilight. <laughs> Why did you say so, that 16 would be a number that he would like? It's, it deals with spirituality, but it also deals with the individual being able to create. Uh, six deals with family-type things, but things that are different and, and very into uh, the uh, becoming the seven, which is things of learning and teaching. The spiritual oh, side nice. is always seven. That's huh. interesting. The 16 becomes the seven. Interesting. There's other, there's other anomalies, too. He, uh, he has 16 celestial alignments shown uh, in the courtyard and on the wall. Um, if you, uh, He lived to be 64, which is 16 plus 16 plus 16 plus 16. Uh, there, mm-hmm. There's a, a whole lot of these different numerical coincidences that seem to right. happen. 16 becomes a seven, and the day he passed was a seven day. On the December I didn't 7th. Know that. Yeah, but it was the seven day that he passed. I'll be darned. I did not know that. One of the things that he did was he would leave clues written around the castle. This is this is how I discovered the uh, the east wall of the Coral Castle was celestial alignments in the first place. On the admission side, right when you walk in, uh, in the early morning oblique lighting. Uh, of the sun as I was going there for my third time, I noticed that there seemed to be something scrawled into the coral underneath the admission part, which is admission 10 cents drop below and then the little pipe where you put in the 10 cents. And then just under that, I noticed that there was something scrawled into it, but you couldn't see it if you were looking straight at it. It had to be lit from an oblique angle in order to make it out. And it said spica, spica, S-P-I-C-A, spica. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know what spica was. 
And so I had to look it up. And what I found was that Spica is the largest star in the constellation of Virgo. Okay, great. So I walk into the Coral Castle. When you walk in, the first thing you see is the east wall. If you walk straight from the entrance where you see the emission sign, you walk straight to the back corner, and you walk over to the leftmost orb on the east wall, the one that they, I don't know what they call it, Mars or something. If you look at the base of it, it also says Spica. And the reason is is because it is Spica. And then next to it is Saturn. And then next to that is this, is this crescent shape. And if you put those three things together on September uh, 10th, 1923, you will see Saturn in retrograde in Virgo on September 10th, 1923 at 6.08 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. It fits. And there are so many. It, it all fits perfectly, like, like keys and locks. They're, he takes you from one to the other to the other to the other. And all you have to do is be paying attention, very close attention, and you can see it. But here's my question, R.L. This is a man that had, what, a fourth-grade education, something like that? How did he I think he would have had no problem qualifying for Mensa. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, because, my gosh, for him to be able to figure this out and also – leave these very sophisticated clues. We are talking about an absolute genius. Mm-hmm. We are, but I also think that the fourth grade education was actually a help and not a hindrance. Because you see, in some ways, if you are learning wrong things and you have yeah. those blinders on, right. you will be able to not see things that contradict that or you will not be accepting of them. I saw his lack of formal education uh, a boon to him. Because he was such a keen observer. He was such a, a, a polymath. He learned so quickly. He had very subtle and sensitive senses that he could teach himself more easily than others could teach him and probably more accurate things. And I think that's what we see here was he didn't go get a Ph.D. in physics and then start trying to build the Coral Castle. No, he didn't do that because none of those Ph.D.s can do it. You see, all those guys with their PhDs in physics and astrophysics and doctorate degrees cannot lift one of those stones out of the ground, but somehow Ed can. So that's the guy I want to listen to. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, we want his his information. We could sit at his feet forever. And so here's another question, and I, I guess this is one of the peculiarities of his personality. He did not want to reveal any of these secrets outright to anyone. Is that true? It is true. And I think that he spent a his entire life encoding the secrets to be discovered later and why would he bother doing that if he if any schmuck who walks up and asks him can just find out why the life worked then, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And wasn't he at one I point think, also attacked by people who wanted to know and he still wouldn't give it up. He still wouldn't tell them. Well, I believe that this is one of those folklore stories. And, and again, this is, this is kind of one of the things that I have been researching to either confirm or deny. Mm-hmm. My very best guess is that that was a cover story. I don't think anybody in the world would ever hurt Ed. He was so meek and so kind and so non-confrontational. I couldn't imagine anybody doing that without the entire community being alarmed and upset about it. Mm-hmm. What I believe is that he needed to move the Coral Castle. 
He had to. And the reason he did is because when you do science, if you do an experiment and a miracle happens, well, that's not science. You have to have verifiable and repeatable results or else your science is not valid. So he built the coral castle once, lifted it up out of the ground. So he had to prove that his science worked beyond a reasonable doubt. So he had to do the scientific thing. He had to pick it up and do it again and move it down the road a few miles and then set it back up and then keep building. So it's not location. It's not a trick. It's not a fluke. It is repeatable and verifiable. And I believe that that's why he did it. Okay. Amazing. And what what about the story of his uh, his fiance? Is that true? I it sounds like a cover story to me. And when I when I get into it a little bit later about why I believe it's a cover story, I think you you might be inclined to agree with me. Mm-hmm. You see, Ed was twenty six years old. He come from a a poor family in mm-hmm. Latvia. They were very political. And at this time, Latvia was in a great deal of civil unrest because they were being invaded and taken over by the Russians. Mm-hmm. Everything I've been able to read about Ed suggests that Ed did not take a liking to that. And mm-hmm. he was, like any other red-blooded Latvian, he wanted to fight for his home. And he was, um, I believe, a person working against the Russian military forces that were trying to occupy Latvia at the time. They said that Ed would walk around. His friend said Ed would walk around with a rifle under his coat, and they said he would walk right by Russian troops and never even bat an eye. This is a guy who had ice water in his veins. Wow. Uh, I, I don't think a, a, couple of, a couple of punk teenagers in Florida were going to rattle steely-eyed Ed one yeah. bit. Um. So I don't think – I think that he may have gotten into some trouble over there. I think that it is possible that he could have gotten into an altercation with Russian military, that he could have had uh, a bounty on him. He could have been out looking for him after something he had done, and he needed to flee the country. I, I think it would have been more political than anything else. Um but for to be rejected by someone and then leave the entire country and go to another country where you don't even speak the language, like that's, again, people gloss over this as though that, that sounds normal, but there's nothing normal about that. Not at all. You and I, neither one, have ever met anyone who someone broke off the engagement and they went, that's it, I'm off to Italy. And, you know, no, nobody <laughs> does that. Nope. That is rather odd. They go, yes. they, right. So, but, you know, it's interesting because it is in keeping with your, your description of Ed as a spy. Exactly. You see, these are all cover stories, folklore, uh, things that they just keep getting passed down and passed down and passed down. Right. I was fortunate enough to speak with uh, Marilyn Hicks and her father, and Thomas Hicks Jr. as well, uh, Tom Mays, was... Ed Leedskalnan's personal attorney. Oh. And he was his attorney when Ed passed away and handled his estate. And at the time, Marilyn Hicks was uh, a 14-year-old girl when Ed passed away in 1951. 
and her father, who was also the mayor of Coral Gables, and he was a highly respected man and a man who she still calls daddy when she talks about him, mm-hmm. um, said that they went to recover Ed's effects. Two trips. And her brother, uh, Tom, Tom Hicks, who was home from college, mm-hmm. also went. And they recovered a box, a few boxes of belongings. And her father had given her, it looked like a shoebox, she said. It looked like an old shoebox. And he said, here, sweetheart, you go through this and you tell me if you find anything important or anything. Just let me know what you find. And her and her friends sat down in their living room floor and started going through this box. And they were giggling because it was a box of love letters that Ed had written to a lady named Doris Duke. Now, oh, my. If that name doesn't ring up, but you know who, you yeah. know who that is. Doris Duke, the heiress of the Duke tobacco fortune, at one time called the richest little girl in the world. So here we have Ed Leedscalden, maybe the poorest man who's ever lived, (laughs) writing to Doris Duke, the richest girl who's ever lived. Oh, my goodness. And they're, they're snickering about these love letters and that Ed is being very romantic and very sweet. And that he he believes that Doris Duke is answering him through a comic strip. He has, oh he has she said they found a stack of letters and then a stack of cut out comic strips from a comic strip called Doris. And if you look up the comic strip Doris, the main character in the comic strip looks exactly like Doris Duke. Oh <laughs> for my heaven. goodness! The hat goes even deeper. So. Okay, so I call her. I confirm that this is true. She said, yes, he had these letters that he had written to her, and he had these cut-out comic strips, and he believed, based on what she had read from the letters, that he was answering her from the comic strips, that he believed he would receive a message from her in the comic strip, and then he would write back to her talking about it. And, of course, they all thought this was great fun and that this was some mythical relationship that Ed Leeds Goldman was pretending to have with an important right. and beautiful person at the time. Again, Ed Leeds Goldman does not strike me as the sappy romantic type. Mm-hmm. He's very flat-footed on the ground. And I don't believe that he would be as realistic about everything else as he is. And being such a scientist and such a clear thinker, and then given to this whim of a fantastical or imaginary relationship with a person he's never met, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So I asked a few questions. I said, well, were the letters, uh, did he receive any letters from her? And she said, no, right. they were all letters he had written to her. And I said, well, if he had written letters, letters to her, why didn't she have them? All right. That's going to be my question. And she said, right, and she said, that's a good question. I don't know. But, see, I know the answer to that. And the answer is, is that when you, write so, when you write someone something that's encoded, you keep a track of what you've written as well. You keep track of both sides of the conversation. So oh, he okay. would write two copies. He would write a copy of the letter to her and then another copy for himself, mail one to her, and keep his as a receipt of the messages to keep track over time so things don't get confused. This is spy stuff. So 
once I cracked the cipher to a book in every home and I started applying it, just the most amazing things start pouring out. It says things like, and I'm not, this, this requires no manipulation of the text. When I do this cipher, this is how it comes out. And it says things like, the central bank of the central bank of the Republic of Kazakhstan. The central bank of the central bank of Russia. The Russian Academy of Sciences. The central bank of the central bank of the Kantimansk people. The diamonds are not lost, nor are their surroundings. What in the is going yeah. on here that is right, pouring yeah. out of this book? Well, so that's not even the big part. I'm getting to all that. But the big part is, is that when I applied the same cipher to a comic strip from a month and a year when I know they were both alive and communicating, mm-hmm. it came out to a message. Oh, for heaven's the same sakes. In, the same encryption works. So incredible. belief is that they were really in touch with one another then. It's not a belief on my part. I absolutely state unequivocally for the record here and now, Ed Leedskalman and Doris Duke were spies, and they were talking to each other in code. Oh I know my because gosh. I broke the code myself. Oh, what a revelation. I, <laughs> I mean, this just completely changes everything we know about the Coral Castle, about Ed. It rewrites it all. It changes everything. And the wealth of knowledge that I've started carving out of this book is unbelievable. This is incredible. It's, my mind is boggled. I'm trying to really grasp everything you're saying, R.L., and there's a lot you're saying. Well, it is. I, I, I dumped for? 15 years on you in 30 minutes. I, I get it. It's a lot. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> How, but who were they spying for? Why were they writing in code to each other? What was the purpose? One of them seemed to be, it seems to be financially based in some part, and this makes sense, as Doris Duke was an extremely wealthy person at the time, I think it's extremely possible that somehow she knew who Ed was. I think she trusted him beyond belief, more than anybody on the entire planet. Because if you ever met someone who didn't care about money at all, it was Ed. And who else could a billionaire heiress trust? But a yeah. person who wouldn't pick up money, if it was laying at his feet, he wouldn't pick it up. So right. he is a guileless creature when it comes to that stuff. And I believe that he acted as uh, an agent on her behalf to possibly set up secret trusts to hide maybe certain valuables, treasures that she had. It was well known that she had a, a, an extensive and, and glamorous jewelry collection. And things like the diamonds are not lost, nor are their surroundings, really piqued my interest. Uh, oh, yeah. Cute little phrases in there I pick out. Like um, it says in one part, it says, a handy box of geophysics. Well, if that isn't a box of diamonds, I don't know what is. Exactly. That's a handy box of geophysics for you. So it's, it's very cutely written. But then also part of it is that it was confirmed that Doris Duke was a spy for the SAS during World War II. One of the messages that I intercepted was from August of 1945. And the reason I picked that is because that was the exact same date and month 
that Ed Leedskalnan released his book, A Book in Every Home. It was in August of 1945. So since that cipher worked at on that book that was written at that time, I wanted to find the closest clipping I could find. And I found one for August of 1945, Doris. And when I decoded it, a message came out. Grammatically correct, spelled correct, a coherent point, a beginning, a middle, and an end. All the words in order. You see, this is uh, when you break codes, one of the things you want to do is apply something called the chi-squared. It's a mathematical formula that eliminates the possibility of coincidence. In other words, so you might, you, the, it's the uh, thousand monkeys in a room theory. If you had a thousand monkeys in a room all banging on typewriters, one of them will knock out Shakespeare eventually just by coincidence. Right. But in this case, when it applies to coding, there is no such thing as that. It either passes the chi-squared or it does not. Mm-hmm. The chance that the sentences that I have decoded being a coincidence or a fluke are millions to one. Not a million to one. Millions, millions to one. My, computer, uh, my, my calculator just goes off the edge of the screen. It says E. It just, it's, it's impossible, mathematically impossible for it to be a coincidence. So, so let me ask the reason you this. I know, yeah. Because this is so fascinating. I am just on the edge of my seat, and I know everybody else has to be too. <laughs> uh, this is a great, great story that's obviously true. But So you know who Doris Duke was a spy, a spy for, because that's confirmed. Who was Ed spying for? If she was a spy for the SAS, then he had to be on the side of the Allies. Right. Um, mm-hmm. At the time, uh, during World War II, um, when she was a spy for the SAS, I don't think there's any possibility of her being able to communicate with Ed in code and for as long as they supposedly communicated without it being uh, uh, a team effort that we're all on the same side here. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Sure. Definitely. I believe that she may. I believe that he may have even been recruited by her. Uh huh. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you're really filling out this man's life. I mean, when PK and I had been reading about him to catch up on on any anything new, we didn't find anything new. And he always mm. seemed like a one-dimensional character that was just devoted. <laughs> to this long-lost love that he hoped would show up one day and building this castle that nobody could figure out how he built. So that's as far as most people have gotten with this story. You've taken it to so many other levels. My goodness. Well, you know what I've noticed about Ed is that he didn't mind fooling you. If Ed could fool you, he would. I mean, he was almost like a magician in reverse. You know how a magician will do something just relatively mundane but make it look amazing? Uh Ed could really do the amazing and spent his whole life trying to make it look mundane. <laughs> and I see through it. And, and it's just like, uh, I, I don't understand. I guess I have, I'm a high functioning autistic person. And so I process things differently than others. And I detect patterns and my deductive reasoning is different and I'm a creative problem solver. So I will look at things in a way that other people don't. And I just wonder if maybe Ed was possibly an autistic person as well, because 
the way he communicates is in a way I understand, but nobody else seemed to have gotten it at all. That's right. That's right. And oh I have spoken goodness. to uh, I've spoken to a doctor who was uh, he was from Harvard, and uh, his name is Robert Hardman, and he was uh, a neurologist and a psychiatrist who had graduated both degrees simultaneously from Harvard. And he had spoken to me. We had discussed the subject, and he said, "Ever occurred to you that Ed might be autistic because your his behaviors, what you say he does and says." It's very autistic, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, it kind of is, huh? And he said it also makes sense why you would be able to understand him and other people wouldn't. And I was like, well, you know right. what? That is a fantastic point. It really is. I think he hit it. That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're going to have to take a very short commercial break. Can't wait to get back to more on this story, R.L. This is just amazing. So everybody, Thank you so we, much. Oh, my God. This is so cool. So we're going to take a short break, but stay tuned, everyone. You are listening to Supernatural Girls Radio, and we'll be right back. Pure essential oils, specialized minerals, and a revolutionary anti-aging technology. Astridian combines the best of all scientifically proven ingredients in easy-to-use creams, lotions, and concentrated serums. Astridian's advanced line of products take your skin to a new level of being healthy and beautiful. We offer a variety of collections that address all your skin concerns. The Essential Anti-Aging Series treats and moisturizes your skin for a long-lasting, younger look. The Multivitamin Series promotes healthy skin with high-quality vitamins and minerals. The Sports Series restores skin from cellular damage and stress. Astridian also offers a revitalizing solution for hair and a professional series for doctors and medical spas. Visit astridian.love today and begin your new journey to healthy, beautiful, youthful skin. Astridian, beyond your expectations. There are a lot of psychics out there. How do you decide which one is right for you? You look for someone who empowers you, who's practical and spiritually connected, who says, here are your opportunities, here are your challenges, and here's a way to deal with them, and then gives you your own toolbox to make your life everything you want it to be. Hi, I'm Corby Mitleid, and that's how I work with you. As a certified professional tarot reader, I've helped thousands of people for over 40 years through my toolbox. Cards, past life retrieval, numerology, spirit guide conferences, and mediumship. Whether it's career, relationships, finances, or your spiritual road, together we can replace your confusion with clarity. And you'll probably find a little laughter along the way. Visit me at CorbyMitlide.com to find out how to cross your bridge from fear to fearlessness and fly. And tell me you found me at Supernatural Girls for a special gift with your reading. Corby Mitlide the practical psychic for catching your tomorrows today. Find me at CorbyMitline.com. That's CorbyMitline.com. Your property tax bill. Have you seen it lately? It's frightening. Your property taxes are going up while your home value is going down. It's time to fight back and win. For the real truth about the property tax system, get attorney Pat Quintilian's book, Are you getting screwed on your property taxes? How to find out and how to fix it. 
Attorney Quintilian answers all your questions and gives you the facts you need to fight a property tax bill that is spiraling out of control. You'll also read about what happens to property owners who don't check their property records, only to find out too late they're taxed on square footage, fixtures, and even buildings that they don't own. Is this happening to you? Learn your rights. Buy Attorney Pat Quintilian's book today. Are you getting screwed on your property taxes? How to find out and how to fix it. Available on Amazon.com. Are you frustrated with endless mantras, affirmations, and processes that promise to align your life with your dreams only to find yourself years later in the same space where you began? Do you feel like you must be doing something wrong because nothing seems to be working? Don't you just wish that someone could shift your consciousness for you and your life could align with your desires without all the effort? Well, your wish is about to come true. Hi, I'm Carrie Cannon, and I have a gift that allows me to align the consciousness of others to be in harmony with their dreams. The best part is, it requires no particular effort on your part. Upon listening to a consciousness alignment, people have reported instant energy shifts, financial windfalls, soulmate connections, healed relationships, physical healings, and more. To gain access to a free trial offer for my entire Manifesting Miracles library of consciousness alignments, go to commandmiracles.com now for details. Again, that's commandmiracles.com for information about our free trial offer. That's commandmiracles.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker. I am here with my co-host, Patricia Kirkman, PK, and our amazing guest tonight. We are just fascinated by everything he says. He is an author expert, and his name is R.L. Poole. He's got a great book out called The Lead Scowlin Codex Breakthroughs in Understanding the Coral Castle. Oh, my gosh. So, R.L., let me ask you this. How did he build this thing? How did he move those enormous stone blocks? Well, we have to look at it from several angles. And and this is part of what has gotten my book to its popularity. You see, he understood something about physics that we don't. Therefore, he can do something we can't. Right. What he understood and kept preaching over and over again is that magnetism is the base, most fundamental force in the entire universe, that it, it creates, governs, and destroys everything in the entire universe. It is magnetism. It is perpetual motion in and of itself. He says in his written work, the earth itself is a great big magnet. <laughs> That's, it's kind wow. of a simple way of saying it, but it's very true. And you see, this is the part where, and this is why my book is number one in the physics of gravity on Amazon right now. It's because if you ask Neil deGrasse Tyson or anybody else to try to explain gravity to you, they're going to beat their head against the wall. Mm-hmm. The reason is because they started off wrong. Newton very famously observed that uh, an apple falling from a tree was having a force exerted upon it which he describes as pulling the apple toward the center of the earth. Now, this is a brilliant observation for the time, okay? Right. But what he did not know 
was what was at the center of the earth, pulling the apple toward it. And what's at the center of our earth is a giant iron nickel magnet. At our core, it gives us a magnetosphere. It protects us from the sun. It, it, we are encased and enshrouded in magnetism constantly. Well, he did not know that or see that. What he saw was a force being applied that was pulling something toward the center of our planet. And he didn't know what the cause of it was, so he had to describe it somehow. And what he called this force was gravity. Mm-hmm. But he was mistaken because gravity and magnetism are not the same thing. You'd be hard-pressed to know it by talking to a physicist. Uh, you ask a physicist, what does magnetism do? Well, it attracts things. What does gravity do? Well, it attracts things. I'm sorry, what? That, they seem very alike to me. That's and right. what they don't understand is that what Newton called gravity was really magnetism. And then we have Einstein, hundreds of years later, still picking up the old, flawed Newtonian physics, taking this gravity concept and then picking up and running with it now and extrapolating it out to such a degree that it has become almost sacrosanct in the physics community. And what Ed realized and what I have learned from him is that gravity does exist, but it's not what you think it is. Magnetism is a pulling force. And as we go through the universe, we are a giant magnet spinning and hurtling like a bullet through the universe at 69,000 miles an hour. And as this magnetism that we are encased in flies through the fabric of space-time, that magnetism causes a disturbance and a curvature in space. This curvature in space-time curves in on us. In other words, where magnetism pulls down, gravity pushes down on us. We are not pulled down by gravity. We are pushed down by gravity. Now, since we have magnetism and gravity both pulling, both going, one pushing and one pulling, but both in the same direction, it's very understandable to get those things confused. Mm -hmm. But we have other scientists like Boyd Bushman who proved that we can lighten things by using magnetism. He had a a rock, and then he had an object of equal weight, but he had two magnets that the opposing poles had been pushed together. And when he dropped them, the one with the magnets fell slower. That's because we're not fighting gravity, we're fighting magnetism. So if you use the reverse magnetism, now we have something. Does that make sense? Oh, my goodness. Amazing. <laughs> my goodness. Yes. And you're explaining it so well that even we can understand this. <laughs> it's really great. No, I can understand. Well, don't say, don't say that. You're very clever ladies. You, you had me on. First of all, it shows how smart you are. Secondly, I want this information to be accessible. And, and when I wrote the Lead Scalding Codex, and I think one of the reasons that it's so popular is because it is written in plain English. It is written in layman's terms. I want to tell you a story, not read you a mathematical formula. That doesn't help anyone. We have right. too many armchair scientists. We have too many mathematicians and too few observers. Because if these guys would stop staring at their blackboards for a minute and go out and look at the world, When you go outside and you see clouds that are flat on the bottom, that's not gravity. 
They're being pushed against an invisible magnetic table, and you can see it with your own eyes every day, the miracle of magnetic levitation. We see it so all around us. This is what you're describing, the force that he mastered the use of in moving these stones around. Because I know people have speculated in the past that he was using some type of a sound that was doing it, a vibration of sound. But you're saying it wasn't really that at all. It was magnetism. It's more of a manipulation of the fundamental forces. Uh, And he did not Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time writing about sound. You know what he wrote about? Obsessively, his whole life, magnetism. <laughs> that's what he was. That's what he was concerned about. Now, if you take the fact that now you remember what I said about gravity, right? How it's yes, Newton right. called it wrong. He didn't know what was at the core, but it's a magnet. He says the Earth's a great big magnet. Well, now extrapolate that out to its ultimate conclusion. If the Earth is a magnet, so is the Moon, so is the Sun, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. is Venus, so is Saturn, so is Jupiter. So are all celestial bodies are all sphere magnets, all rotating around one another. Now, imagine what kind of effects that might have of if you had a, a ring of magnets rolling around each other on a table, and when they align, boop, it's the trigger for a Gauss rifle, or it's this or it's that. And what he did was he used the solar system as a mechanical device and waited for the tumblers to line up and placed himself in the correct position at the right time and then I believe using the perpetual motion holder that he had created with the missing piece of the schematic that I found, I think that he would pour water over the coral. I think that he would put that perpetual motion holder in the black box that was above uh, where he would work. And I think that he would release a charge of extreme electricity and magnetism down into the earth during the celestial alignment. And I think that during the celestial alignment, it would allow this effect to actually work for a short while. When we look at other megalithic sites, we see stones that are 90 tons. They're perfectly rectangular, polished like glass, moved halfway to the site and just kind of dumped there and forgot about it. Right. It's called the lazy stone theory. Well, what I believe is that they, it's not the lazy stone theory. They're like, well, why would they move it halfway there and forget about it? They didn't. They ran out of time <laughs> during the celestial okay. alignment. They were trying to do this, and they're like, oh, it's getting heavy, heavy, heavy. Oh, hits the ground. Okay, we'll put it there next time. Next time this comes around, we'll move this stone and get it there. And I think that's how they did it. They didn't know how to time this. They only knew how to use it. And so as the celestial alignment moves out of position – the effect wears off, and then the stone goes back to normal. Everything goes back to being heavy and, and difficult and, and hard, you know, and so then we have to wait until the next celestial alignment. Amazing. I believe that's how it's been done the entire time. Probably. And now there was also a rumor that was, was talked about with Ed and that he discovered – all of this information at the local library reading books on Egypt. So what's the real story on that? I think that it is possible that some of that information could have been gotten that way. Mm -hmm. I think also a great deal of his time at the library was probably spent on how to write codes because the code that I cracked for a book in every home 
would have made Turing himself blush with envy. It's extremely complicated. Yeah, Uh, but I do believe that – and see, this is why I wanted to study the Coral Castle to begin with, because I realized that it's a megalithic structure. It was made within the last hundred and some years. The person spoke and wrote in English, and they left behind information. Now, if he made it the exact same way that the people made the pyramids 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago, he is, Ed Leedskolner was our best hope. He dug this up and resurrected this information. And then, like the Egyptians, encoded it into the structure itself. And I think that he had the ability to, I think he was smart enough to learn Egyptian like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, and I think he could go back and read the hieroglyphs, and I believe that he could make sense of them in a, and put them in a context that maybe scholars would not because they are looking at them through a very narrow lens, and I think Ed, with his more esoteric way of seeing the world, could read between the lines and actually figured out what science they were using and was able to replicate it. Because like me, he's studying the people who did it. He studied them, and I study him. <laughs> <laughs> it's just but I incredible. Fascinating looking oh. at some of these things is the fact that the heavy gate that he had on the palace, the, that, you, that a small child could touch it with just a finger and make it move and to get it to open. The nine-ton gate. Yes. Yeah. That There's a great a- film footage of this little toe-headed guy, little two- or three-year-old guy just toddling up to it with one hand, and it just opens with just the easiest touch of a little child. Weighed nine tons. He had it balanced on a an axle, a truck axle, mm-hmm. and it was resting on this pie-shaped piece of stone that they still have not been able to identify, but... It was, they studied it because it had taken the, I forget how many newtons it was on the very center part of the stone from the point of the axle, and having nine tons on a single point, yet it still did not break or crack or wear mm-hmm. at all. So they were trying to figure out what kind of stone it was, but they still can't identify it. It was sent to the University of Florida, and they refused to comment on it. But when they went to uh, the door, the, the, uh, the axle, uh, rusted out. The bearings rusted out on it eventually, and they needed to fix it. And I spoke with Laura May, who is the director and curator of the Coral Castle Museum, and she informed me that she was there, and she was in charge of the project, and she hired uh, two cranes, 20 men. Mm-hmm. They can't do it. They couldn't do it. Oh, my gosh. Now, nope, we're talking engineers. We're talking heavy equipment. We're talking more than sufficient manpower for what anyone would assume you would need for this project. They couldn't do it. Uh, the door now is non-functional. It rests in place, but it cannot be moved again. Oh, a shame. And well, it could, is, but it, it's I'll but it's also a challenge because I want to be the one to be able to tell up here. Let me run this machine. You go ahead and straighten that door up for me, real quick. Oh, <laughs> there That's you what go. I want to do. Go for it. Because that, I'm not doing this for nothing. I'm not doing this to sell books. I'm doing this because I want to raise stones like Ed did. I want people to know what this is. I want this taught in classrooms. I want this to be an experiment one day and not a theory. Well, you know, I'm looking at the implications of this for obvious construction purposes. But I'm wondering, just there must be other 
ways to use this secret of magnetism. And, I mean, I'm thinking of health and things like that. I mean, to have this deep of an understanding, as Ed did, about how magnetism affects our planet and us, there's got to be more. And certainly the Egyptians. Oh, my gosh. This is what's so exciting about it is because once you understand and you get your mind around this application of magnetism, the world now opens every other door. Now everything must be rethought, reimagined, restudied. And to see where this application fits in, where it makes sense, where it can help or improve, the applications of this information really is limitless because the applications of magnetism, as the universe shows, is limitless. Well, that's true. I mean, I remember years and years ago listening to a lecture by Dr. Ralph Sierra on magnetism in healing, and he was using the north side of magnets to shrink tumors in people. And it was very rudimentary. I mean, it was just regular magnets. But he was able sure. to affect tumors with these north side magnets and then obviously the south side was used to make things grow but he was very he really had some type of an understanding about magnetism that was quite different from everybody else but it wasn't the extent of what ed had i mean ed had something that was just so deep and remarkable but as you but you're totally forward, right. There are so many applications of magnetism. We can grow plants in a dark room just exposing them to magnetism. Really? They will grow. Because, it is, because the light is the carrier of the magnetism. This is another uh, one of what I call Leeds uh, Lee laws. Light is just heat and magnetism. Hmm. I never That's thought it. of it. Good grief. Heat and magnetism. So, he, you know, he says, yeah. you know, we are electrical beings. Think about it. We have... Instead of uh, we have an acid tank, we have a stomach, which is a battery. We put, we put fuel in it. it. It takes it apart, turns it somehow into electricity that runs our system, runs our heart, runs our brain, runs all of our autonomous functions. Uh, and, and we make it out of other stuff. We, don't, we are electrical beings, but we don't use batteries. We have our own internal power generator in our stomach and, and the acid, just like a 12-volt battery that you would put into a car. It has acid, and we put zinc into it. It gives out an even number of positive and negative, and therefore you run a car. Same thing with food. When we eat, we're putting energy into ourselves. It's going to be taken apart by the acid, turned into electricity, and then fuel the vehicle. It's the same thing. Now, what did Ed die from? Ed died from pyronitis, a kidney infection. Yes. Yeah, he died in the hospital of a kidney infection. Uh, was it December 7, 1951? Mm-hmm. And he died in the hospital. And before he died, he was calling for Tom Mays, who was the mayor of Coral Gables at the time. And uh Marilyn uh, Hicks uh, told me the story. She said we were all sitting at the table eating dinner, and she said, and Daddy got a phone call, and he said, I have to go. And they said, what's wrong? He said, Ed's Ed's on his deathbed, and and I have Mm -hmm. to go see him. So he made it down before, and and they thought he was crazy because Ed was nobody. He was just some little weird hermit who lived in Florida by himself, and he's asking for the mayor of Coral Gables. 
And so right. finally, finally, they convinced, he convinced one of the nurses to call, and he said, yes, I'm his lawyer. I'll be right there. So he flies down. He catches Ed. He, he does see him before Ed passes away, and Ed says, money, money, under, under the radio, money. So they go, and uh, they find a note in a box that says, money in pipe under radio. So they, they go back out, they look, they lift up this kind of crystal radio-looking thing that he has, and underneath is these vertical pipes, and inside these vertical pipes appear to be bills. And she said, Mommy, Mommy stuck her finger in there and kept pulling out $100 bills, and they pulled out about $3,500. Well, for heaven's sakes. And, and $100 bills. Well, it was a fortune back then, and here's the thing. They said that Ed would make his payments on his land and change from the money that he collected from the tours. That's what he paid uh-huh. his bills. They said he always paid it with bags of change and that uh, Tom Mays is always very tickled about the fact that Ed paid in, in change every month. But but this is a guy who paid for his bills in change but somehow still had $3,500, which was a small fortune back then, hidden yeah, in definitely. pipes under the radio. For what? For right. <laughs> because you know why? Because that's a John Wick move right there, okay? That's what spies do is they have cash <laughs> hidden for emergencies. Right. Yeah, leave <laughs> but he had but why what happened to the money? I mean he didn't have any heirs. Uh he did have an heir, actually, and this is uh, one of the things I got from uh from Marilyn Hicks where she said he wanted them to go through all his personal effects to try to find an heir because he was very concerned of what would happen to the property if they could not find a living relative of which to pass the property. And they did, and it was a distant relative, and I want to say it was a nephew, a distant nephew, um, who was at the time um, in very poor health and lived away from the, where the Coral Castle was, was not interested in it, didn't know anything about it, and kind of didn't want anything to do with it. And mm-hmm. it was left to him, and then he ended up selling it to uh, another owner, and then they sold it, and it's with the people, uh, I believe their name is the, the Bars, I believe are their name, and they own it today. And hopefully they leave it to me so I can have the Coral Castle in the future. Well, That's we want to see that happen. After all, you've written well about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. You know, we'll just we'll – Well, I, we'll put it out there with you. Absolutely. We're right with you on that one. I think you, we think you should have it. And then you probably find more things that have been hidden away in the stone. Oh, there's so much more. I wish I had enough time to tell you all of them, but I guess everybody will just have to either get the book or go to the YouTube channel or go on LinkedIn, whatever it is they do to try to, to catch these things because there's so much. It'll take me the rest of my life to tell you all of them. Well, now, is Prometheus going to be doing a television show about this? They really should. Well, I was on uh, the first season of The Unexplained with William Shatner. It was season one, episode two, Mysterious Structures. And I'm I'm featured as their guest expert. And that's when uh, they were kind enough to say that they had researched all of the Coral Castle uh, researchers in the world and that I was the only person we're talking to. And that so nice and very generous to me. And they flew me down to the Coral Castle and uh, I I had the honor of being filmed and being on their television program and being able to share some of the information that I had learned. But again, because they have more than one thing on the show, you know, not everything gets a full measure of time it deserves. But this could be an entire documentary. I mean, this is, you have so much material here. 
I agree with you, and I would very much like to do a documentary about uh, this fabulous. this national treasure hunt, the lead skull and mm-hmm. treasure hunt, because it's the treasure is is the physics, the science. You know, I, I do think that he was helping Doris Duke with some financial things, and that these are probably left to be found. But that's the least exciting part of it. Um, and again, I think like everything else about the Coral Castle the most important things have been in front of our eyes the entire time if we would only just stop long enough to pay attention. Well, we're paying oh, attention. So <laughs> Good because this is just a magnificent amount of information that puts an incredibly different light on who Ed was. And I still mm-hmm. feel, I mean, I know you haven't been able to tell us everything in this hour and a half, but I mean, it's, I feel like he had a depth here that nobody anticipated over all this time that, that we've known about this castle, and you're the only one that can bring it out. Well, thank yeah, you. Definitely. And I I hear that a lot, is people say, we're kind of depending on you because you seem to be the only one that can do this. And I I take it as a great responsibility and a privilege to be able to pick up Ed Lee Scullman's torch and to carry it a little further down the line and hopefully um, light as many other torches as possible along the way and therefore fill the world with light. That's a beautiful thought. And have you ever considered that maybe you guys are somehow related? No. Well, I don't know. i got to be honest. I, I think if Ed met me, I don't think he'd like me very much, to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> really? Yeah, oh, I really did. Uh, well, Ed was a little tiny guy, and um, I would make at least two of Ed. And <laughs> I'm covered in tattoos and sarcasm, and oh. uh, you know, I, I I'm I'm a weird guy. You know, I wear sunglasses in the house, and uh, you know, I wear weird loud shirts. And he was very humble and very shy, and I'm very loud, and you know, kind of in some of my ways, and. Uh, People notice me, is all I'll say. I'm covered in tattoos and loud colors and flexy sunglasses, and I talk with my <laughs> hands. Like fun. I'm sarcastic. Yeah, I'm a lot of fun, but I'm not, I don't think Ed, I was Ed's kind of guy, uh, to be but honest with you, but I would have loved to have given him my Duke. tour of the Coral Castle and see how much I got right. Seven times, yeah. Mary Grant being one of them. So she and herself was quite unique and uh, different. Yeah. Everything she did and was I think different. Doris Duke was a rebel among rebels in her day, and yeah. really a, a trendsetter. She was a person who shied away from the spotlight, but at the same time wanted absolute, complete control over her own destiny and got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a lot of respect for her, and I think she was also quite uh, flamboyant for a lady of her time with her relationships and, and things like that. She did not really give a damn what other people no. thought, and she I love that about her. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I I believe it's because money is the real freedom, isn't it? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Now, you're going to be writing another book, you said, right, about all of this? Well, I'm working on it right now. I'm decrypting a book in every home, so I know what I'm, until I get the entire thing decrypted, um, that'll be on hold. But I will be making videos to put on my YouTube channel on Coral Castle TV and I post things under my name, R.L. Poole, on LinkedIn. And, of course, anybody can get my book on 
Amazon or Amazon Kindle. Uh, just type in RL4 or the Lead Scalding Codex, and it'll pop right up. And so until I can come out with more uh, additional information on these newest revelations, um, I think people would do uh, themselves a great service by catching up with all of the other amazing things I've found before you get there. Um, and yes. I'll be sending both of you uh, a copy of my paperback, the Lead Scalding Codex, and, oh, and uh, I would like for you to... I'd like for you to read it, come up with a bunch more questions, and then have me back on, please, so we can continue. We promise. It's too much Sounds like a great idea. Yes, we would love that. We would absolutely love that. Now, let me ask you, and just in case there's anybody else kind of lurking out there that may have some information on Ed uh, and or Ed and Doris, how can people get a hold of you? What's the best way? The very best way to do it is if you email me, um, and my email is talking to Lead Skullman. It's all one word. You got to really want to send me a message to type that out <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> um, a lot of times people will hit me up on LinkedIn, uh, just RL Pool. You can find me on LinkedIn real easy. Uh, people message me on there. I have to warn you, I get a lot of messages, so I can be slow on returning them. But I do return them eventually. You can ask Patricia. I do. Yes, I do answer them no. eventually. <laughs> I wasn't going to give me. up on no. having you on the show. You know, when I didn't hear back from you at first, I was like, I'm going to track them down again. So I'm glad you finally. You were did too sweet. Because... I was like, you are just the sweetest stalker I have ever had. Just I say yes. <laughs> oh. That's fine. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, I enjoyed stalking you. And <laughs> I take it as a compliment at my age, you know, I really do. <laughs> Super. This has been just so remarkable. I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. And again, having this be such a favorite story of both PK's and mine. I mean, you've you've given us a great gift tonight and our audience to be able to Definitely. have this look into this this whole uh this whole mystery of this man and what he did and the implications of it. I mean, just thinking about what can come from this once you have it all decoded is amazing. I mean, this can change the world. Very true. It will have to change the world. I don't know how anything could be the same after we find out these things. And I think it's already changing if you look at how well the Lee Stallman Codex is doing and how people like yourself, PK, you guys are excited, enthusiastic about it. You go, oh, I understand what you're saying. I'm on your team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is what it takes is, is people supporting folks like myself who are doing good work, folks like Graham, uh, folks like our friend Nick Redford, things like that. guys who are out there really trying, girls who are trying to do their job, do the very best they can to uncover the truth, and the ones who are doing it, they should get the attention and the support. And I appreciate you so much for that. And uh, it, it's a it's a nice feeling to be recognized by your peers for doing important work. Well, you That's certainly are. Important. Yes, and yes. one more thought on this, RL. When you know you think about how sure. a lot of things have been declassified, and you do have that information about Doris working for SAS, I wonder if you could also determine again who RL, I mean who uh, Ed was working for. And if there's any more information that you could get on that that might lead you to a deeper understanding about what he was doing with Doris and why. So I'm just curious oh, because, that is, you know, yeah. 
A lot of that stuff is declassified now, so long ago. Sure, it may be, it, but also finding it. Was it recorded? You know, spies don't keep great records. They so really don't. Whatever like you might find, right. <laughs> whatever you and might I'd find, have... is open to interpretation. I think the document that we have a book in every home, and I think that the comic strips, the Doris comic strips, during the time when they were both alive and communicating, I think those are really our best resources to really finding out what it was they were both doing. Um, yes. But I would like to believe, from everything I've read about. Doris Duke and everything I know about Ed Lee Skullman was there's no way they could have been bad people. They were on our side and they were our friends. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah. I don't I say spy with a negative connotation. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was both they were both positive and they were they were trying their best to help. I'm sure of that. You're right. Absolutely. Well everybody be sure okay. to get a copy of this great book by R. L. Cool. It is the Lead Skelman Codex Breakthroughs in Understanding the Coral Castle. And as RL has shared, the easiest way to get to him is on LinkedIn or give us that long email again, please. You got it. Talking to Lead Skelman at gmail.com. All one word. All right. Wow. Well, this has been such a great evening. Time well spent with you, R.L. Thank you again so very much for coming on the show. We are definitely going to have you back. Thank you. What an honor and what a great time. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you. And everybody will be back again next week with another exciting show. And until then, we'll see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural.